The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements and treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. All right, welcome everybody. We're here with another episode of Taking It to Heart. I'm here with uh, Luigi Pirelli, uh, one of my co-surgeons here in the Valve Center, and we have the distinguished honor of having our colleague across the park, uh, Gilbert Tang, the head of surgical, um, uh, the surgical program at the Structural Heart Center at Mount Sinai Medical Center. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you. Hi, Isaac. Thanks, uh, Luigi. A lot of data. Uh, a lot of live cases, um, interesting discussions. I think it was a great, uh, great meeting, three days of uh, full structural uh, topics that I think we all uh, enjoyed. Gilbert? Yeah, no, I agree. I think there was a lot of energy, a lot of excitement to be back, uh, you know, since the uh, kind of COVID pandemics is over, a lot of content, great live cases and tape cases. You know, I thought the late-breaking clinical science were Pretty fantastic! Some of the new data being presented, so uh, so definitely, I, I think I I enjoyed it a lot. So the taped cases, guys, what did you think of taped cases versus live cases? I I liked the format in terms of the the streamline. It's a very efficient way to do it, but I have to say, it does lack a little bit of that wow factor of coming into a big audience in a big room and seeing someone sweat it out live. You know, not not sure what's going to happen. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, uh, honestly, live cases are are better for the audience. Uh, Recorded cases are probably better for the operators. (laughs) Uh, Live cases definitely makes makes it more interesting for the people uh, attending the meeting. Uh, It's a little bit more energetic. You never know what's going to happen. Everybody can... uh, uh, can be uh, the operator in in that sense and can give suggestions or uh, or critiques. Uh, recorded cases, uh, I think we have uh, all the time to think. Uh, you can you can press pause and uh, and uh, uh, evaluate the situation and uh, take your time to to make any decision and suggest your your best bet. What do you think, Gilbert? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the two purposes, I think the tape case a bit more just educational, showing you can pause, you can discuss, you can show certain, you know, technical aspects of the case that you can rewind and actually go over for the audience. Whereas I think live cases, uh, you know, you have the kind of uh, unknown factor uh, until you actually see what's going on uh, in real time. The uh, only thing is that I think the value of type tape cases that, you know, as you know, sometimes uh, what you plan for live may not actually happen because the patient may get sick or have to cancel, may have to reschedule. So you might not actually get up, get to present the case that you want to show. Whereas tape case, you kind of pretty much know the patient will be available and the case that you, or the points that you want to highlight will be available to show that. So I, I see value in both. All right, so let's get started. Um, oh, by the way, I really liked the imaging session. The imaging session was awesome. So. Uh, plug out to the imaging session next year. If, if you have the chance, go a day early, book early, get a get a deal on your flight, and and hopefully you can make it to the imaging session, which was a lot of fun. Um, maybe honestly the highlight of of my experience there. But all right, so let's get started. I'm gonna um, 
you know, talk about some of the key lectures that we saw and heard about. And I'm going to start with um, talking about full body protection for CEP. You know, there are a lot of new devices that were being presented, a lot of, you know, preclinical and first-in-man kind of concepts for, for new embolic devices. And a lot of them have to um, are based and, and designed for full body protection. Um, some of these include M-Block, Emboliner, Captis, and, and Flower. Um, what do you guys think about this full body protection as opposed to filters that lay on the arch? Uh, as opposed to filters and individual head vessels? Uh, I'll start and I'll, I'll give a pretty uh, easy answer uh, from what I think. The, the numbers are, are so small. Uh, the rate of stroke during transcatheter procedures is so uh, small that uh, um, I, I believe uh, if we don't find a balance between uh, costs of the procedure, uh, clinical outcome, and um, um, and the uh, device itself, I think it's not worth using an extra uh, protection layer. I think what we have uh, with the Sentinel device is uh, probably already enough. It's easy to, to place. Um, it, it does add some costs and time to the procedure, uh, but I, I wouldn't escalate another layer of, uh, of protection. I think uh, uh, being the disabling strokes, um, so rare, uh, thank God in, uh, in structural procedures, I would, I would stop there. Yeah. For me, I would, I would say, I think the, the issue with all these devices is that you can only protect the patient during the procedure. We tell our patients all the time that, you know, this is not something that will protect you for life. Doesn't even protect you during the entire hospital stay. And we know that these uh, device, uh, you know, stroke happens within the first 24 to four, uh, 72 hours, actually, after tablet. That's the most vulnerable period. So I think, yes, whether you, you protect one, two, or three vessels, uh, I think certainly if you don't have to engage the arch vessels, so a lot of these uh, elderly patients can have atherosclerotic aorta and, and arch vessels would be ideal and also simplify the procedure. I think the question is whether it uh, kind of compromises the ease of use from a tablet deployment standpoint and whether there might be potential interactions uh, with some of the devices tracking across the arch and you end up uh, potentially you know making the procedure more complicated you know some of these devices as you know have larger bore access as well so that can potentially risk increased vascular complications so so I think there are trade-offs of everything and, and I think it depends on the patient's uh, anatomy and, and risk factors probably is the better way to yeah, no, I mean, you know, having having alternative access, having a, a second vascular access for a lot of these devices, I'm sure is going to be annoying. Um, you know, there's the protembus through the left arm, which I'm sure people are going to be irritated with. Uh, left radial is always a little bit painful. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of these full body deflection devices or capture devices are banking on are that the fact that you protect downstream embolic events, so particularly AKI. And a proportion of AKI occurs because of atherosclerotic debris. And so they've actually moved some of these events into the primary endpoint. If you look at emboliner's primary endpoint, it, it includes death, stroke, and AKI. Um, what do you guys think about these endpoints? These are tough endpoints, especially in light of um, uh, Sentinel and, you know, not getting some kind of extra reimbursement right now. Um, do you have to prove a stroke, a clinical stroke endpoint? And, and should all of these trials be clinical stroke endpoints? 
I would say yes. Um, I definitely need to prove uh, uh, cerebral embolic events uh, in strokes. I don't think uh, it would be easy uh, to to um, diagnose and prove uh, uh, AKI uh, due to embolic uh, uh, events during a, a structural procedure. I think that would be a little bit more difficult. So. I would uh, I would focus on the on the brain um, also because it's the most uh, devastating complication that can happen over during a structural procedure um, and uh, I'm not so sure that uh, the vast majority of uh, renal insufficiency episodes that happen after TAVR are due to embolic event that can be prevented with uh, uh, any kind of uh, of device. Yeah, no, I agree with Luigi. I think there's so many confounders of AKI as an outcome and endpoint, and we've seen some of that in the literature. You know, contrast use, for example, is one pre-existing uh, renal dysfunction. So it's going to be very, the event rate is going to be too low. I mean, even if you lump it as composite, what you might do with as a composite endpoint that you might make a, a study, you know, a trial positive uh, rather than negative. But I, I, I agree with uh, Luigi that you need to look at disabling stroke and also overall stroke. Uh, as a as a endpoint, as clinical endpoint, and it has to be adjudicated. I mean, it's a really tough space. Um, I'm, for the record, I'm all in on CEP. I mean, we use it here, and I I do think that our rate of kind of big bad strokes has has gone down. But I I understand the regulatory challenges, and they're pretty pretty you know incredible. It's it's hard for me to see how these primary endpoints of of actual stroke or real efficacy are going to be met in these 250, you know, 500 kind of patient trials. It's a really tough space, but a really, a really number of nice devices that are coming out, um, whether it's from the groin or the radial or, or anywhere else. So it's, um, we'll have to see what happens here. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think a good good way to to put it is uh, the, the the companies need to uh, definitely lower the price of the devices and make it more affordable. Maybe bundle it with uh, a tower device. Um, and second of all, they, they they have to reduce the the size of the sheath or the delivery system that is. Um, uh, device going through um, because if we keep uh, uh, putting large bore access or requiring a large bore access uh, also as a secondary um, uh, point, um, it's going to be difficult to to justify it. All right. Um, so let's go on to Portico uh, Navator. Sorry, I can't call, call it Portico. It's Navator. So just, <laughs> I'll, I'll correct myself there. And then the Accurate Neo 2, both of them kind of went through a new review and have had some revived interest now. Um, what do you guys think? So are you going to be able to have more than two or three devices on your shelf? Are you are you prepared to do that, Gilbert, at Sinai? Yeah, I think there is a role with, uh, you know, some of these new, uh, not so new, actually, available in Europe already, uh, these self-expanding devices. Uh, I think we're just trying to figure out what's the, you know, what two workhorses uh, valves are going to be. I mean, I think one's going to be a balloon expandable, one's self-expanding. And I think which uh, self-expanding valve will apply to the most anatomy um, with the least uh, percentage of adverse outcomes and also promote lifetime management. 
I think also in terms of operating comfort, I don't. I think maybe you know centers like yours and ours who do a lot of volume can probably split up the cases and and decide which patient will get uh, which one in, in an ideal manner. But as you know, most of the tower centers in the country or even the world uh, do very low number. And I think you know we've seen consistently there is a volume outcome relationship from operating experience. So I think it's going to be challenging for. Uh, smaller centers to use multiple devices, but there are some attractive features in these devices. So I foresee that once they are commercialized and uh, an accurate uh, NEO, I think the Prime is going to be uh, probably the commercial product. And Navator now has uh, some improvement in terms of their design, in terms of parabolic leak and seal, uh, may be amenable to certain patients who may benefit from, for example, uh, better gradients and, and hemodynamic performance, but at the same time still have intraannular design that you can consider lifetime management with a redo tower in the future. So, um, Luigi, you know, a lot of these are are self-expanding, right? These new devices are self-expanding. Just the balloon expandable design has been challenging to replicate. Um, and then you have IP issues. But from a self-expanding standpoint, you know, what's the what's the prime consideration? A lot of these valves are looking more and more similar. It's like our population. Everyone's kind of mixed and, you know, we're going to end up with one person uh, at the end. But that's what Taver seems to be coming to. How are, how are you going to make these decisions between these these self-expanding valves? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. I mean, the, I think uh, we'll be lucky enough to to have different valves. Uh, on the shelves in this in the future and we can really tailor uh the index procedure and also the future uh intervention that the patient will require uh based on uh, on anatomy each of these uh, uh new valves um, um uh, they're they're self-expandable the, the portico and the the accurate neo but they have uh, also good uh, good features uh, uh that uh, uh i think um um are uh, based on a different uh, uh risk plane and also uh the shape of the uh, metal um um uh, frame of the of the valve um they the 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 hemodynamics uh, will be good in both i mean the the accurate neo is superannular so we expect uh, probably even lower gradients and and bigger eoa uh, compared to the portico uh, both uh, take into consideration the reality of uh, a lot of patients that need to be uh, recast uh, or they will require another uh, valve in valve or tavern tav uh, so the cells are are bigger. So uh, even if the the self expandable uh, design is uh, is starting to be probably the leading um, mechanism of uh, deployment of this valve, but each of them on top of the self uh, expanding design has uh, has particular features that uh, not only will uh, uh, easy up the the index procedure, but will uh, make uh, future procedure feasible. Yeah. No. I mean, I I think. I think the more the merrier for me. Uh, it's it's nice to be able to have all these options. Each one is a little bit different, and I think as we you know understand patients' priorities, we understand how to use all of these valves. We we're going to see that each one of them has a place. Um, you know, I'm interested to see how Interis does. It's probably the only balloon expandable competitor to Sapien right now, and. Um, that EFS is going to be starting soon in the United States. So we'll have to see how that performs. Um, but a lot of new technology and I think good for patients. 
hopefully it'll also be good for pricing. You know, they usually say that more than three allows market competition. So um, maybe that'll actually come to pass. All right, we've run out of time here. We're gonna continue our TVT wrap up in the next session here, but uh, we're gonna again be joined by Luigi and Gilbert and um, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much.